This is episode 82 of The New Disruptors, Into the Bellwoods with Lucy Bellwood, permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that draws with the right side of its brain. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. This podcast is made possible through the support of sponsors and patrons, thanks to Cards Against Humanity, which is helping underwrite our new indie ads, inexpensive short advertisements designed for independent artists, makers, programmers, and others. Thanks to Cards Against Humanity, which you can find at cardsagainsthumanity.com, a site from which you can buy their products directly. Our indie advertisers this week are B, that's B-E-E, an issue tracker and timesheet app for the Mac that you can find at neat.io, N-E-A-T A history of the future in 100 objects by Adrian Hahn, a look at objects that will define the 21st century. Thanks also to patrons Ben Wordmuller, Ted Timmons, and Gordon McDowell for supporting us directly through Patreon. You can back this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash newdisruptors. At higher levels, we'll thank you on the air and send you mugs and t-shirts. Lucy Bellwood is a Portland cartoonist who started her working life with a crowdfunding campaign that's let her go independent from the start. She's a member of Periscope Studios, a loosely affiliated working space and collective of which I've interviewed other members. True Believer was the outcome of her Kickstarter project, and she's gone on to build a career. Lucy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Glenn. It's great. And, you know, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that I often interview people who are, you know, somewhere further along in their career, in their late 20s or 30s or 40s and beyond. People who are making have made a change, have gone through one part of their life or have been struggling for a long time to figure out what clicks and then it happens. And so I think it's going to be great to find out how in 2014 or 2012 when you started that you can figure out how to start your career this way. Um, and the other is uh, your Periscope Studios. Like it keeps coming up because there's so many creative people packed into your offices, uh, all of whom are working on their own thing. But you also get this sort of uh, superstructure of having all these resources and you guys working together. So I think both these two different elements that I think are great for people to hear about collaboration and, and getting started. I feel like we're at a unique point in the history of cartooning that uh, it would have been very difficult for someone your age to have, you know, been able to have their own career. Back in an age, even when magazines and newspapers were, you know, minting money and paying a lot of money for, you know, comic strips and illustration and editorial cartoons and had people on staff, it, you'd have to serve an apprenticeship. No one would let you just start out. And then the last 15 to 20 years have been sort of a disaster for that whole market, which sucked a lot of the money out of there for people who drew. Uh, <laughs> it, it, but you're, you started here. I mean, you just graduated college in 2012. It's 2014. You've got a career of your own. Do you feel feel that? You, I mean, you talk to enough other people. Have you managed to start at a point in which you just hit this uh, inflection thing between finding an audience and being able to, to, to make enough money to make a living? I feel like it's utterly unique to the time period. This is the sort of thing that I'm sure I would have been able to cobble together some kind of living at even 10 years ago. And you can see that from the people that I'm working alongside at Periscope Studio, folks you've interviewed before, like Dylan McConus and Erica Moen, whose work I was reading when I was a little wee baby <laughs> comics fan. And now here I am working alongside them. And that acceleration of career paths, I think, is something that's definitely intrinsically linked to the Internet and to structures like Kickstarter, to structures even like social networks like Facebook. Uh, a lot of my 
crowdfunding success, which is really, I think, the reason that I was able to launch into doing this full time. It's not to say I wouldn't have been drawing comics straight out of college, but I don't know that I would have been making a full time freelance career out of it right off the bat. And a lot of that success was simply because I had access to a social network of people who weren't necessarily comics fans, but who were me fans, people who were willing to invest in me as a creator. And I think that's kind of the shift that we're seeing through organizations like Kickstarter, organizations like Patreon, that are driving this cult of personality towards various creators and not just investing people in their output, but in the creative process. People like Austin Kleon, who are putting out books like Show Your Work, um, that are all about you know, or steal like an artist that are, that are all about showing the process of creating something and breaking down that myth, perhaps, that creativity is this kind of mystical fairy dust that's bestowed <laughs> on you from the sky. This was what I wrote my entire undergraduate thesis about is the, the, the approach towards creativity in America and how we have this attitude of uh, it's simultaneously being worthless and priceless. So it's something that I get really worked up about. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's it's really important for people to have access to the parts of the creative process that aren't just the finished product, because it allows for a degree of audience engagement and investment that drives creative economies. And that's super important and definitely really different from the way things looked 10 years ago. Yeah, that's uh, the revolution or the, the insight that people want into the artistic process is fascinating to me that there's been now... Uh, it's not an industry yet, but I mean, Kickstarter's part of it, Patreon's part of it from the funding standpoint, but even uh, this, the live draw sessions that so many artists offer that sometimes it's part of a reward thing or sometimes they're like, hey, I'm going to draw the comic strip. Anybody wants to watch, there's a Google Hangout or I'm yeah, streaming it on definitely. this. Like that's, of course, was not possible or feasible in any real sense before, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, it was, you could do it, but now it's straightforward. It's like you click a button and you, and you can stream it out to an infinite number of people for essentially free. And um, I'm always, I guess I'm surprised. I've always loved cartooning. I'm not an artist myself. I'm, I'm a graphic designer. I'm not a drawing artist. I have very bad drawing skills, uh -huh. uh, but I have very good type skills. And uh, But I've always loved cartooning and illustration. And I have that obsessive interest. I love seeing how people work. I visited a sculptor once who was a friend of a friend. I didn't even ask him. He took me down to the studio and he showed me how he conceived and I was just, I was beside myself. And yeah, now, that's, the, that's the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. But now, now people can get, I want to say access. I don't mean that in a, like a sort of a, you know, like I want access to the artist, but it's that people really want it. They really actually want to see how you work. Yeah. And there's something about it that doesn't, maybe there's this attitude that, oh, showing the process uh, diminishes the magic of the finished product. And I think it, it actually does the opposite. It enhances appreciation for the amount of work that goes into creating something. Whereas uh, a mathematician can show pages and pages of computation to arrive at a proof or a theorem. Uh, with a cartoonist, we encounter comics in books more often than not, especially with the rise of the sort of graphic novel culture. And I think when people encounter books, they're, uh, when you read a novel, you're not intrinsically uh, thinking about it in terms of each page being a crafted work of art. It's just part of an ongoing narrative. The book is the object. And with a comic, I feel like each individual page is its own work of art, but they do blur together to form a larger narrative. And when the exhibition came through Portland for uh, Arkham's Genesis adaptation, oh yeah. I went to the gallery and they it had taken up, you know, they hung every single page from the book individually framed on the wall. <laughs> so you you can imagine it took up about three floors of gallery space. And I sat in a corner and eavesdropped for a couple of hours. I was writing a paper for a class about it. And 
I heard so many people as they were walking around the room, you know, these art patrons, people who wouldn't normally pick up a comic, even if it's an adaptation of the book of Genesis, uh, looking at Crumb's original pages, which have the whiteout, which have, you know, the masking fluid and the eraser marks and the pencil lines underneath the ink. And so many people said, oh, so much work. It must have taken him so long. And you never would have heard somebody say that, I feel like, in the same with the same reverence if they were just handling the book. Because the book doesn't give you that direct connection to the artist making the mark on the page. Yeah, that was uh, – I think Picasso had um, had some feeling about that, about the sculptural use of paint, um, that you could build things up or you could paint things flat. And there's something about – I don't know if it's exactly the same point, but that he wanted to make use of the flattest form of the medium, or at least at one point in his career, um, yeah. to create the effect and didn't want to show his work. He didn't want to show how you built up you know, a three-dimensionality to it. He wanted to be able to pull it off entirely without people being able to see what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a quote from Johnny Ive, the Apple's uh, chief designer, that I saw the other day that just seems so apropos. I just looked it up because when you're talking about that, it reminded me of this. He said, and this is something that I think is foundational in, in art. I, I totally love that he said this. He said, uh, it's a New York Times interview, we all see the same physical object. Something happens between what we objectively see and what we perceive it to be. That's the definition of a designer, trying to somehow articulate what contributes to the way we see the object. And I went... He is an artist. Like that is <laughs> that is the mindset is you have the thing in your head, the reality, and there's a difference between it. And there's also – he's articulating I think particularly the difference between our perception of the real thing um, and then there's again that thing in your head before you make the thing. It's like holy cow. That just seems to be the basis of, of how you conceive of and create work. And it also constantly explains why artists have this sense of – the ongoing failure in their work because <laughs> it's the ultimate pursuit of, you know, just the line getting closer and closer to the x-axis of trying to actualize the thing that's in your head and what you create on the page is never going to be exactly like what's in your head. But the greater your skill set, the closer you get and it's it's intoxicating, right? You keep chasing it, you keep going after it because every time you do it, you're a little closer and a little closer. And other people from the outside look at it and they see something that's sprung fully formed from your head as if from nowhere. And it astonishes them. You get people peeking over your shoulder in coffee shops saying, oh, I could never do that. And I always have to, you know, just swallow my words and say thank you as opposed to turning around and saying it's a skill, it's a practice, it's something that, you know, I spent hundreds of hours honing over years and years of work. And I'm certainly not anywhere near done yet. We're never done. But that uh, that discrepancy between what I imagine and what I see on the page maybe explains why people look at it and go, oh, this is so good. And you go, yeah, well, it's kind of they go, no, shut up. How could you possibly say that it's not perfect? And as an artist, it's never perfect. But that's what's great about it, because you want to keep going for it. You want to keep going for perfection. I will uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to a uh, Tom the Dancing Bug cartoon that just came out. You may have seen it by uh, Ruben Bowling's uh, long-running strip, and it's about Picasso. Strangely enough, about Picasso, oh, probably why I was go. thinking about him. And uh, as if Picasso were living in an age of social media and drew his first clown. And that was all he drew the rest of his career. He didn't need to evolve <laughs> because he found his thing. So I'll, I'll put a link to that, but it's perfectly apropos. What you were just saying, so uh, you know, I bring this up again because I'm, I'm an old man at 46. I'm ancient, right? Ancient. And uh, feel, I, I'm still 20 inside, and uh, as, as we all should be, uh, without all the awkwardness. Um, but the, <laughs> but yeah, 
Yeah, 20, 20 was a messy time. So, I don't know that I'd want to be 20 forever actually, inside. You're, 20, you're 24 now, so 20, 24, yeah. 24 is a great, 24, 25, that's what I am inside. And, there you uh, go. but so I, I don't want to harp on the age thing, but, uh, but it, it's not unique what you're doing, but it's certainly, I think it's highlighted. You've gotten actually a lot of attention, not because of your age, but because of your work. And when I circle back around, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, you're really just out of college, but you've been able to pull all these pieces together. You just mentioned that you, you'd, you know, it's hundreds of hours honing the career. Have you been drawing obsessively your whole life? I'm always interested where cartoonists get started. Well, my mother was a cartoonist oh. uh, before she got into the film industry and started doing editing and writing work. And she's she'd basically stopped doing it professionally, but she ran a small freelance operation where she was doing generally more New Yorker style single panel gag cartoons and they yes. she was putting them on mugs and t-shirts and stuff like that and it that became too much of a burden once she had a child so that kind of tanked off but she was drawing a lot when I was a kid she had a lot of books by folks like George Booth and Ronald Searle lying around the house so when I was growing up I was reading a lot of that stuff but I didn't grow up thinking I want to be a cartoonist when I grow up. It wasn't that kind of career path from the start. I, I would say that I drew a lot. Uh, certainly there are embarrassing sketchbooks aplenty that you can see in my house uh, that attest to this fact when I was growing up. But like around, I would say 11 or 12, uh, a really key thing happened, which was I apprenticed myself to a, a friend of ours who was a graphic designer and comics enthusiast who had gone to RISD and was working in Ojai. And he was a friend of the family's. And my mother had the brilliant idea of putting us in touch. And I would go over there every Sunday. And for three hours, he would give me basically what I realized, looking back on it, amounted to the foundational arts course at wow. RISD over, you know, maybe two or three years, I would go every week. And all of my observational figure drawing skills, you know, the, the really the hard stuff that I would not have developed on my own. Eben was the person who taught me. Eben Matthews. You can check him out. He's got great work online. Um and that was, in. you should, uh, that was invaluable because I was drawing a lot on my own. But when I came to him, I showed him my sketchbooks in our first session, he'll, he said something really smart to me, which was, you know, you're really good at what you're doing. This is great. Um, you're going to have to scrap all of it, but don't be afraid because by the time we're done and you've learned all this stuff, you'll be able to come back around to where you started and you'll be able to do it so much better than you're doing it right now. And that was way better than coming into a, a visual professional and having them look at my sketchbook and go, well, this is juvenile crap. You know, I was drawing like anime inspired uh, character drawings with overblown, lots of belts and bell bottoms and platform shoes. I mean, it was it was dire uh, <laughs> when I look back on it. But I appreciated that he was willing to to say this is good for where you're at. This is how we make it better, not throw it all out and start over. That's a terrifying thing when somebody says I need to tear you apart. But it's all going to be okay. <laughs> uh, all going to be okay in the end. Don't, don't worry. Uh, you just have to trust me. Oh, my God. He, he was the kind of teacher who, uh, in order to get me better at gesture drawings, would stand over me with a stopwatch. And I'd have a big page of reference photos in front of me. And we would be doing these uh, five-second figure gesture studies. And when you're timing yourself, five seconds is kind of hard. You'll give yourself a little bit of leeway to switch figures and move on. But when you have a giant man standing over you going, switch! Switch. So, you know, you're like, oh, Jesus, God, <laughs> you have to draw as quickly as you possibly can. And that kind of kinetic energy carries forward. He was the one who, you know, was really a stickler about proportion and anatomy and perspective. And these were all things that I realize most other people don't get until unless they have a very arts intensive high school education, they may not get until they get to college. So it kind of made up for the fact that by the time I was an undergrad, I had ended up at a liberal arts school with no intention of being an art major. 
And by the time I came back around to doing art, it uh, it all shook out that I'd acquired some of those basic skills that were enough to kind of get me started on that practice. Pretty amazing, though, that you had the discipline and interest and encouragement and a family friend who was willing to do that. That's a pretty neat place to be to do that. I too. don't even know where I would be without that experience. It's it's really the more the older I get, the more career experience I have. I, I look back on that and realize that that's kind of the, the key moment, right? The turning point. In, uh, in Seattle, there's a teacher and cartoonist, Lynn Lucas, who um, I don't know if you know him, but he's uh, was Erica Moen's mentor uh, when oh, she lived cool. in Seattle. And she credits him uh, quite a bit, I think, with encouraging. And he's a huge fan of hers now. And my older son, who's uh, nine now, took a class, was it last uh, fall? He was doing a kid's cartooning class. And wow, did he get a lot out of it. But this people mm-hmm. like that who are so... I mean, Lynn teaches a lot of kids. And he's, he's raising the next generation of cartoons. And the thing is funny is... It used to be – I can't remember which cartoonist it was. I remember her, she did this whole thing about how much her parents were angry at her for even being interested in it. This was probably a 15-year-old you know, thing I'm thinking about or 20 yeah. years old because cartooning used to be a terrible profession. No, you know, go be a streetwalker or go into theater. <laughs> do, do anything else. <laughs> this is terrible. You can't – you're never And especially for women. I, I went to see a friend's grandmother the other day and she, she was asking – she said, now you're a cartoonist. Is that right? It must be a very difficult profession for a woman. And <laughs> I, I just laughed because I said – you know, yeah, maybe 40 years ago, but definitely not now. The cartoonist that I, I mean, it's funny that you say, you know, this was Erica's mentor. I feel like the visibility that uh, I saw in comics when I actually started to get into the idea of making comics, it wasn't through reading Marvel or DC. I mean, I read Calvin and Hobbes as a kid, but beyond that, beyond Sunday funny stuff, I didn't have a big comics education. But once I got into sort of, I would say junior high, I started reading web comics. And who did I see making webcomics? Women. Yeah. Lots of women. Lots and lots of women with no outside approval from a publisher necessary. They were just making work and putting it online. And seeing those stories growing up, reading those stories meant that I came into it with this attitude of all I have to do is produce the work and put it online and keep doing that. And sooner or later, people will read it. And that will be neat. The end. And I, I never could have thought that that would lead to an actual career. But it's it, it gives me... Uh, a lot of excitement and a lot of interest to hear and see what the cartoonists of the next generation are going to be like and what their influences are and what their perceived limitations and uh, broken limitations are in terms of, you know, doing away with stereotypes from this generation. And of course, there's always, you know, artists on Tumblr who you see who have incredible portfolios and beautiful work ethic and stunning composition. And they're 12. Oh, I, and yeah. it makes you hate yourself. <laughs> I see a regular series of, of sketches, maybe some by you on Twitter from artists who, did you just do one recently on Twitter that was like, oh, this person's great. I should look them up and they're 17. God, you know. Yeah. Un- unacceptable. That's right. That's right. But well, it's also always- great because it means that, you know, we're in this renaissance for, for cartooning right now. I'm, I'm pretty sure just because the internet is bringing out a wide and more diverse variety of creators than ever before. And that's... Kate Beaton is a great example of that, right? Is that I've talked about her in previous podcasts. I'd love to get her on the show at some point because Mm -hmm. she did not plan what happened. And it's sort of crazy. I mean, she's an outlier because not... I mean, she's got... She has a, a set of unique abilities and interests and is kind of, you know, the stuff she writes about is quirky, but she's an outlier, but it was just nuts how quickly her career went from somebody posting on Facebook, I think, and then Tumblr to like New York Times bestseller. That's nuts. It, I mean, yeah, it would never have happened before. And it's also not everyone can do that. Even very successful cartoonists aren't all going to be Kate Beaton's, but the fact that a Kate Beaton exists is fantastic for everybody else. 
Right. And also what that means, I think about this a lot, especially with Kate's work, because reading it when it was first starting out online, you know, when they were these little like MS Paint drawings on Live Journal. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Ages ago. That's um, so funny. That now, I mean, she was posting on Harker Vagrant pretty regularly for a number of years, and then through the astronomical success of that, got her book out, and then kind of disappeared. You know, it's like she she's she on does secret and big. I think right, and that's and that's the thing is that there are all these artists who um, I feel like that's kind of the trajectory is not necessarily that your first move out of the gate is. Uh, to pitch right off the bat to a publisher. Some people do, but I think far more common, it's you You start making your own stuff, you put it online, you make things you're passionate about. Somebody notices and says, oh man, you do you want to come work on this book? And then the internet kind of loses track of them for a couple of years because drawing comics takes a long time. Drawing long form stuff takes a really long time. And you resurface eventually with a book, but it's something that I, you'll notice I've been very noncommittal in my comics projects. They're often, you know, between two and 20 pages, right. nothing that would take me out of the universe's circulation for more than a couple of months. And uh, I have a lot of anxiety towards starting a larger project that I would have to pour myself into that way, because there's this thought that the internet will forget me. It's um, I will cease to exist. <laughs> but the flip side is is sometimes you're you know <laughs> not that attention is bad. But I was thinking about Ali Brosh, for instance, another you know mm-hmm. extraordinary uh, person who's an extraordinary storyteller with a really idiosyncratic, I mean, really weird drawing style that completely works for it. Completely tells a form without being classical or you know a conventional uh, whatever. And she very publicly um, last year talked about. Uh, you know, her serious depression and she did an amazing strip about it. But like there was all this attention on her. I don't know if that exacerbated it, but it's that that flip side that um, that people do disappear. They need to walk away from it for their own reasons as well. And um, and that's difficult when you're acting in public when you're. Yeah, you're definitely. Tessa Stone is another great example. She had mm-hmm. a fantastic comic called Hannah is not a boy's name that ran online for a while and developed this huge, quite rabid fan following. And uh, she has a book out now. Um, called Buzz from Oni Press, which is spectacular. I highly recommend it. And another Portland she, company, Oni Press. Uh, yes, Portland, Portland, <laughs> Portland, 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 Portland. <laughs> and uh, she disappeared off the web. Hannah didn't go on official hiatus. It just stopped. And there was a really wide. It's it's kind of scary to go on the page and read comments, you know, on her DeviantArt account or whatever from fans who feel. Uh, betrayed or are just concerned about her well-being. You know, it's like on the internet, it's kind of hard. If you don't hear from somebody, you don't know what's happened or what is happening, especially if they don't come forward like Ali Brosh did and say, hey, this is what's going on. Um, But then here she is, you know, several years later with this incredible graphic novel that's out. And uh, she's obviously been pouring a ton of work into that. And I'm just super happy that she's still making comics. Yeah. She has an incredible skill for it. Yeah. But it's it's a dangerous thing. Uh, Internet fame is is really... um, it can it can be kind of terrifying, and if you're not prepared for it, even if you are prepared for it, maybe there isn't any way to prepare for it. It's uh, it can be really overwhelming and damaging in some cases, and can actually stop you from doing your best work. So that's the the delicate line you have to walk, right? Let's take a break so I can tell you about this week's indie advertisers. What are the 100 objects that future historians will pick to define the 21st century? A javelin thrown by an enhanced Paralympian far further than any normal human can throw? Virtual reality interrogation equipment used by police forces? The world's most expensive glass of water mined from the moons of Mars? Or desire modification drugs that fuel a brand new religion? A history of the future in 100 objects describes 100 slices of the future of everything, spanning politics, technology, art, religion, and entertainment. Some of the objects are described by future historians. 
others through found materials, short stories, or dialogues. All come from a very real future. Visit ahistoryofthefuture.org. That's all one word, ahistoryofthefuture.org. B is an issue tracker and timesheet app for the Mac. That's B like a bumblebee, B-E-E. It syncs with any Jira, Fogbugs, or GitHub instance, and it also includes a built-in markdown editor for your local notes. It's got smart functionality for auto-pausing your current task when your Mac is idle for a configured period, and also just before your Mac goes to sleep. B is ideal for the individual freelancer wanting to track their time, or for people working within large software teams who are fed up with slow Jira and Fogbug servers. Fast live search and notifications, among other features, make issue tracking and timesheet management fun, and it lets you get on with the work that you love. You can find more information and a video that explains how it works at neat.io slash b. That's n-e-a-t dot i-o slash b-e-e. B. And now back to the podcast. It's it's funny being a generation uh, older than you. Just about I, I realize when you talked about the uh, female cartoonist you could see online. I, I, it's not like I gravitated towards them, but the, I think I had a broad enough scope or the area in which I was interested in. I was always reading women cartoonists, and you know, not the comic book world. I kind of got out of after I was a teenager. So when you're looking at uh, an editorial cartoons, always dominated by men. But when you look at the panel comics, I, and I was reading slightly alternative comics to some extent. And there's a monthly publication that collected a lot of stuff from different places. So the alt weeklies and some of the mainstream and some of the, you know, alternative syndicates, I've always been reading women comics, even, you know, even when there was uh, less space for them and maybe the more conventional medium, like Alison Bechtel, I loved her work and uh, would, you know, would, I was reading that from reading that for the whole length that she did Dykes to watch out for. Mm-hmm. So when web comics emerged to me, it actually seemed more like a guy thing because a lot of the very prominent early ones were guys, often technical guys who, you know, were building their own websites and e-commerce engines, whatever. And it, to me, it seemed like it took a few years until, you know, it's not that long ago now, maybe 2006 or seven, that yeah. all of a sudden it's like, oh, every new cartoonist I'm finding is, is a woman and this is great. So whatever factor was keeping people back or whatever societal or structural things, invisible or overt, broke down. And now, you know, I just, I just discovered not long ago is uh, Noelle Stevenson, another person mm-hmm. who came from nowhere and is doing this, um, you know, without any say nowhere. She didn't have published work from presses and so forth. Uh, is doing this incredibly long graphic novel a page at a time. Yeah. Um, and just so I feel like there's an endless number of examples now, which is terrific. Yeah, it's definitely good. And I will say that when I started reading, you know, comics in, in like 2004, five, six, maybe, uh, there were definitely your PVPs, your penny arcades, like all that other stuff. And again, I was just saying to someone at Periscope the other day about how staggering it is to think that when I started reading those comics at their inception, A, if this is always a great exercise with a long running webcomic, is instead of hitting the back button when you're navigating the strips to hit the first button mm-hmm. and you get this wonderful <laughs> juxtaposition of this is what 10 years of drawing a comic strip three times a week will do to your art skills. But seeing, I mean, penny arcade, especially now, is this empire i mean you know conventions on every continent like the just massive uh gaming expos and all these other you know television series and reality tv shows multiple different strips running through the site it's huge and when i was reading it it was like the strip about two guys who played video games and you know yeah and to their credit i mean the reality tv show part like they've gotten a lot of criticism and rightly so for statements they've made and and sensitivity or actually understanding if not necessarily being let's say they're not i want to posit they're not bad human beings i always like to posit that about people (laughs) (laughs) But their ability to incorporate 
the difference between their own experience feeling that they were, they were probably bullied growing up, as they've talked about, and understanding their current position in sort of dominant culture versus people who are in more sensitive positions, people with transgender and, and so forth. Like all that said, the reality show introduced a ton of new female comics and a ton of new, let's say, people who would never get exposure outside in, in any kind of mainstream thing. They really focused on that. And they really did. You know, Erica Moen came out of that. A number of people came out of that. And I think yeah. it's to their credit, they tried to make sure the number of voices that were spoken from different uh, different backgrounds and, and positions were uh, were emphasized. Mm-hmm. Um, I did remember finally, my brain uh, fell apart there for a second, Funny Times, which is at funny funny, times. funnytimes.com. I like to plug these guys because they were for a long time. Now, it's funny. They become less relevant as a publication over time because they were out. Um, I was subscribing to it in the late 1980s, and it was the only way, unless you were in a town, even with a town with the Village Voice or some alt paper, they collected so much in one place, including alternative essays. They ran This Modern World by Tom Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things that were hard to find if you were even vaguely countercultural looking for something offbeat. So, and now the internet is all funny times. So, but they, you know, they still exist and, and they, they persist. Um, I, I wanted to back up to one thing that you were talking about too is, um, so you, you wound up being able to get this strong grounding through this family friend and, and develop those skills while you were, before you even got to college. You say in your bio that you read, you went to read in Portland, a great school, great liberal arts school, with the intent of not being a cartoonist. Why did you take that break? Did you? What were you looking for when you got to school that cartooning wasn't going to give you? Man, okay. Well, I was when I was in high school, I had uh, big, big dreams of going to Savannah College of Art and Design uh, and yeah. uh, checking out their sequential arts program. When I was a little kid on the internet, you know, it was. Just, I mean, we got we got the internet when I was. I want to say like eight or nine, maybe, maybe nine, let's say. So there was definitely a pre-internet time in my life, um, shorter than yours by a long shot. But uh, I was just talking to a friend about how incredible it is that we are one of the last generations that have that divide of pre-internet to post-internet. My my children don't understand any piece of glass that you can't touch and slide or pinch on it. Yeah, it's, it's, (laughs) I, oh gosh, it makes, it makes me squirm. I don't know where we're going or what's going to happen. It's super awesome, but it's also really scary. Um, (laughs) In, in my brain, it's like, I'm taking advantage of these new technologies as I get older, but mentally I imagine that children who were my age before I got the internet don't have the internet. And then when they get, you know, when they turn nine, they magically get the internet. And it's not like that anymore. That's a good sci-fi story, I think. Oh, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> I didn't get a cell phone until I was 17. I mean, I was really like not okay Whoa. with the whole the whole thing. Yeah. No, no. Uh, anyway, we were talking about something. I'm sorry about your. Oh, but why? Oh, okay. yes, you so, got to college. Yeah, yeah. So SCAD. When I was starting out on the internet, I was on DeviantArt, like all young foolish people, and uh, I had a portfolio there. And there were a couple artists I followed. One of whom uh, went to SCAD and was in their then nascent sequential arts department. And I was like, wow, you you can go to school for character design. That's the thing, right, that every adolescent artist decides they want to do is like character design for video games because that's the cool thing. And it means you just get to draw a lot of characters in cool outfits. So I was looking at SCAD as an option and I or maybe possibly their animation department. And I got really into it. And then somewhere in high school, I kind of took a turn into theater quite drastically and was really involved. I was working as a lighting designer, doing acting, playwriting, all the rest of it. I wrote a play that was produced after I graduated high school in Ohio at a local community theater and all this stuff. So when I was looking at colleges, my focus was pretty firmly in theatrical arts. 
And going to Reed, it wasn't necessarily that they were a primarily theater-oriented school, but they had a great department, and I just had a big love for the humanities. And I think there was a fear that going to an art school would mean having to sit through a couple of years of general ed requirement classes with students who didn't really want to be there or teachers who weren't entirely committed and like not getting the academic rigor and intellectual stimulation that I was kind of craving as well as the artistic practice that I was looking for. So I I figured, you know, I can go to liberal arts school. I can always get an art degree later if I feel like that's necessary. And I was at Reed for four years and I changed majors three times, four times, five times, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I started out as a theater literature major. I shifted into English. I spent some time in classics. And then I think eventually I came around and realized that I I really loved drawing. I really loved drawing comics. I really loved telling stories. And I was thick. I didn't put it together that I could draw pictures and write words and put them together in the same place. And when you look back at the history, right, playwriting is basically scripting for comics, you know, acting all about staging and arrangement and framing, lighting design, like all this stuff plays into making good comics. It's it's been described as a dilettante's medium, right? Because you're you're picking and pulling from all these different disciplines. And looking back, it makes perfect sense that I ended up being a cartoonist because I have all these elements in my history that pull together to create a, a passable skill set for that medium. But at the time, it was just kind of all about following what was interesting to me and what I was passionate about at the time. And so it's it's that weird thing where retrospectively, it looks like fate. At the time, it just looks like Oh, what's next? I understand that very well, and I, know, I think all, a lot of people that I know who are are pretty happy and have been able to choose the career that they want, not always on a straight line, of course. They came from backgrounds that are so that that are really disparate, or or they they had a path that seemed obvious to them in life, and they jumped off it. And after some years of doing other things, came back, but all those other things they did helped inform what they wound up doing. Uh, my friend Adam, I just cited him in an article because he got a degree in in hypertext in college <laughs> in, wow. 19, in 1989 yet, and oh my gosh. Uh, and wound up becoming you know. And he, I don't know if he knew exactly what he was going to do with himself, but he wound up becoming a successful and very very early uh, internet publisher. And uh, you know, he had wow. some jobs in a bit, but you know, he's been running. Uh, he and his wife have been running tidbits. Uh, electronic publishing for 25 years now, 24 years now. Uh, and uh, But, you know, what path we can take? I, my degree is in graphic design. I wound up doing a lot of programming, and then I'm a journalist. I'm like, how did my art degree help me in this? But I always like to write. And so um, it's it's interesting to find a profession that lets you, and sometimes difficult to find a profession that everything you've done informs uh, the direction you go. Part of what I find interesting as well is a lot of people don't study, I mean, you, you avoided getting into a uh, kind of a box in which you'd only be studying one thing, right? But a lot of folks don't study even nearly as much as you do. They they come out of um, of college and they spend years doing other things before they have a chance to hone their art or decide they're going to work in it. So you had the time at Reed, but also um, we're going to talk about the Center for Cartoon Studies because that sounded like a very interesting uh, program that you did. How, how did that affect your, I guess, your your plan in life. That was midway through your college career. It was. It was 2010 in the summer. And it was really, I mean, again, another seminal turning point where I wanted, I got this interest in cartooning. I found out about a certificate program that was being offered in Portland through the Independent Publishing Resource Center, who uh, they, they do great nonprofit work here in Portland about independent media and zines and publishing. They have a huge facility in Southeast Portland that has letterpress machines and a massive zine library. It's a great, great community resource. And they started the certificate program. They had three tracks in fiction, uh, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and comics. 
And I applied for their comics program the first year, and most of the accepted uh, applicants for the program already had MFAs and were way ahead of where I was educationally. So I didn't get in that year, but it got me started thinking about how I could pursue comics outside of Reed. Because while Reed has an enthusiastic community of comics readers, there wasn't necessarily an educational framework in place that would support that kind of craft-specific education. Mm -hmm. And I found out about the Center for Cartoon Studies. I can't remember from where initially, um, but they're a little graduate school in Vermont in White River Junction, entirely devoted to the study of comics. And this is something that you'll see more and more institutions in the States are starting to have comics graduate programs or undergraduate comics classes. I mean, it's definitely becoming more of a visible medium in the educational landscape. And CCS was a great opportunity. I went for five days in the summer of 2010 and uh, showed up with about 36 other cartoonists of all different ages and backgrounds from all over the U.S., and we converge on this little sleepy former railroad town in Vermont and stay at this crazy old um, hotel and work in these renovated historical buildings that are serving as comic studios. Uh, and the place is magical. It, it was the first time in my life that I had been in a room with that many other people who all were interested about the thing that I was interested in, but were all making comics at a, at a really proficient, excellent level in very different styles. There was none of that feeling, and I love this about comics, that there's never this sense of, oh, I have to be better than the guy next to me because uh, we're drawing the same kind of thing. And if I draw it better than, than he does, then I'm going to get the job. There, there's no scarcity mentality. I feel like it's constantly a mentality of richness and diversity that the more voices we bring to the table, the better the medium becomes. And CCS was definitely like that. Everyone I met was inspirational without being threatening. And that was huge for me. And I see that from the program that their, their age range is 16 plus. So you had people across, so you would have been right about 20. And then uh, you had people who were much older, younger. Yeah, college professors. Um, we, we had a couple college professors who had come to work on like historical comic stories. And it was people at all different levels of their careers. So some folks were coming with uh, thumbnails for a graphic novel that they wanted to workshop and kind of take to the next level. Some people like me had never drawn a finished comic before. And in the five days that I was there, I drew my first mini comic, which was a little eight page autobiographical story about the time wow. that I'd spent working on the Lady Washington, this uh, tall ship in California. And on the train up to White River Junction, I remember thinking, oh my god, okay, I have to, I have to brainstorm what, what am I going to make a comic about? Oh, okay, autobio, that, that's easy, right? I've read a lot of autobio comics. Um, what have I done that's, that's even remotely interesting or unique with my, Jesus, uh, and I couldn't think, and suddenly I was staring out the window and realized that I'd spent this time working on these enormous replica 18th century sailing vessels and thought, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what, that'll do. That'll work. <laughs> Yes, we'll we'll get to the boat interest in a, in a bit too. So, 2012 rolls around, and you graduate, and uh, a few months later, you do a Kickstarter. And oh the, no, no, no! Oh, I that? did the Kickstarter while I was like during my last year of college, while I was finishing my undergraduate thesis. Oh this, my goodness! This was a terrible idea. You All right, learn so yeah, from my you, mistakes. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, so this is this is a gr so this is a great story. Then obviously, so you're in college. <laughs> oh, I miss. I got the timeline. So you're in college. Uh, Kickstarters are usually used by people who feel like they've built an audience that they can, well, I shouldn't say they feel that they want to, they want to see if they have an audience or they think they have an audience that will help them or they can find an audience during the Kickstarter that'll help them sort of move ahead to the next 
thing. So it's a very interesting thing to be at the position you were at. And um, it was quite successful. What led you to do this crazy thing while you're still in college? So I was at Reed. You're required to do an undergraduate thesis um, while you're there, which is like a master's in some way where you have to write a, a hefty document um, that discusses sort of analytic implications for the creative work that you've been doing throughout the year and all the rest of it. And in the arts department, you create some kind of project, you do a finished creative project, and then you also write this thesis document. And the creative project that I chose to do was a 36-page comic called True Believer. And I had finished drawing it sometime in January or February of that year and realized that I wanted to publish this thing. I wanted it out in the world. But it was 36 pages. It was color. It was going to cost a pretty penny to put out, probably around 1200 bucks. And I knew the department wasn't going to bankroll that because it's something that I'd be selling for a profit. And mm -hmm. they're not a publishing company. They're an educational institution. <laughs> so I can't remember who floated the idea of Kickstarter to begin with. It was something that I was definitely aware of on the web. But I think, again, this is a timing uh, a timing boon that I launched my campaign at a time when there was still a certain amount of novelty. Most press releases you'd see about Kickstarters are things like plucky young artist uses crazy new technique to raise money from fans rather than now where it's like, oh, you say Kickstarter, 90% of people on the internet know what you mean. Mm -hmm. It's become an institution and that oversaturation I, I think can play as a strength, but also as a weakness in some cases where people uh, are feeling kind of stretched thin that every week there's a new campaign that's worthy that they should be giving their money to. Yeah, although I should, I mean, I should mention the fact that's, I think that's absolutely true. And I have Kickstarter fatigue. I have too many friends now. I, I literally <laughs> have too many friends and colleagues and so forth who are doing not just meaningful things for themselves. I just, I backed, uh, I mentioned this in the previous podcast, Sarah Benincasa is doing a tour. I don't know her. She's like a Twitter-ish buddy, um, but she's doing this thing that I think is really important. She's doing a tour, but it involves this book that's an LGBTQT uh, young adult novel she wrote. She's going to go and do storytelling. And it has like this actual, it's great for her career, but it's got a social thing. I'm like, all right, I need to back that because I want that to happen for other people. But um, one of your uh, colleagues in the office there, Erica Moen, as we talk like a few moments or a few hours ago, she raised almost $70,000 for an 18 grand goal. And she came out of the, the Penny Arcade uh, reality show uh, when it wasn't a finalist, but uh, or the winner, but she used that to leverage her career. So we know that if you've established an audience, which she worked for years to build, you can still find them. But I agree with you that the noise level is so much higher, you need to cut through it with a bigger uh, level and and certainly two years ago when you did yours you're right the the volume was or the signal to ratio ratio was much lower you were not getting multiple emails a day from people you know asking you to support their kickstarters absolutely and I think there's a couple other factors that were to my benefit uh, the campaign was pretty small I I was looking to raise twelve hundred bucks and I got almost twelve grand wow. and that was just massively beyond my wildest expectations but uh, I realize now so many of the campaigns that I see are for you know even Erica's at eight 18K is it's a sizable chunk of change. And the, the campaigns that I've really enjoyed backing were ones that had goals of like $300. Yeah. You know, when, when you're giving 20 bucks to somebody who's trying to raise $300, you feel like you're really making a difference in someone's life. And that is incredibly gratifying. And so there, there's something to be said, and it's all about the magnitude of your audience, right? I think you can see from Erica's insane success that, uh, the scale of her audience has grown to such a degree where 18 for her is the equivalent of, you know, a thousand for me like mm -hmm. that, that um, it makes sense depending on what your readership is like. And I didn't really have a comics readership at the time that I launched. I mentioned this earlier, but that's what I think is really fascinating about it is that 
I was really looking at the numbers on Kickstarter's back end. Uh, I, I got almost 100% of my referrals right off the bat from Facebook, which was primarily my social community. I did a lot of social dancing when I was in college, and I was really involved in traveling and, and competing in uh, blues dance in particular. And that the dancer community just took it and ran with it and, you know, passed the campaign around like wildfire. People started sharing it all over the place. And it was mostly social connections, personal connections on Facebook that drove that campaign rather than anonymous uh, people coming in through the Internet who have just discovered my work and are fans without any personal connection to me, if that makes sense. Let's take a break so I can thank Swiftly.com, one of this week's sponsors. It's a new service of 99designs.com, and it's intended to get small design jobs done fast. There's a flat $19 rate. They match your small design job with a professional graphic designer, and it's completed in less than an hour. In fact, the average turnaround time is under 35 minutes. These professional designers are handpicked from the talented community at 99designs, which is the world's largest graphic design marketplace. So the idea with Swiftly.com is you have some task that they could accomplish quickly for you, like a logo change where you need to change a tagline. You want to create some social media graphics like a Facebook cover, or Twitter background, Google Plus backgrounds, or it's a holiday and you want to update something that you have already to celebrate some kind of theme that will go along with what you're doing. Uh, they can also help do photo retouching. Anything that's a small, well-defined task, they can help with. So the way it works is you describe the job you want on swiftly.com. You prepay the $19 flat fee. They match you up with a graphic designer. They get to work right away. The designer completes the work typically within an hour, often less, and you can request design revisions until you're completely happy with the work. There's a 100% money-back guarantee. You download the final files, approve the work, and then they pay the designer. It's that easy. Other tasks that can be done in that kind of time frame include things like updating a banner ad, vectorizing an old logo to create something that's high resolution and ready for print, or just updating information on business cards. This also keeps you from having to bid out a tiny project, because if you're working with one project with one designer where you have to contract directly, you know that there's minimums and other things and overhead. It's all very reasonable because Swiftly.com handles all the billing, finding the designer, matching up, making sure you're okay. The costs are much lower on both ends. Everyone's happy, including the designer who's picked up new work. So go to Swiftly dot com slash new that's s-w-i-f-t-l-y dot com slash new and that lets them know that we sent you on your way the folks at 99designs.com have already created an amazing community of designers ready for work swiftly.com matches your small needs with those people to produce something that you're going to be happy with and you know the price up front swiftly.com slash new and now back to the podcast yeah, I mean, that's the next phase, right, is that you do this first thing where it's people who are – it's the that primary circle. It's, you know, it's well-wishers. It's your it's your core people who want you to succeed and then a, people connected strongly with them and getting, mm -hmm. that, getting that next bubble outside that people who are you're very weakly connected to or not at all. That's the audience that lets you do things at a larger scale. But exactly. It's, but the fact that Kickstarter lets you collect – those people who really want you to succeed and some of them just want the work, but they like your work because they know the person who's, you know, connected to is still great. I think it also demonstrates, I keep, I love the multiplication power of, of crowdfunding in that you had, um, uh, you had 333 backers for this campaign, which is both mm -hmm. a ton, but not a ton. The fact that 333 people participated is fantastic, but you didn't have to get 10,000 to make this work. You only needed no. 333 and it was a huge multiplying effect for you. 
Absolutely. And I, I was actually just listening to your interview with Kevin Kelly the other day because I had his 1000 True Fans essay bookmarked, still do, for the longest time in my in my folder of, hey, this is the stuff you need to keep paying attention to as you make art your career. And his essay, if anyone hasn't read it, is is basically positing the idea that as a creator, you don't need to be Beyonce famous to make a living off of your art. Uh, the number is different depending on the field that you're in, but for a lot of people, a thousand true fans is generally the happy benchmark where you can support yourself entirely on your art. And a true fan is essentially just someone who will buy the mug, the t-shirt, the hat. They'll drive two hours to see you at a bookstore. They'll, you know, they're just like they're in it for the long haul. There are people who you can probably get about $30 a year out of on average, right? <laughs> which is, which is fantastic. And I'm so grateful when I did my book campaign for the magazine, which was weird. It's funny. I was sitting around the table the day. My kids are nine and six and or nine and seven rather when it's seven. And, um, and uh, my younger one says, I can't remember what it was contextually about something. We were asking about – we have this this jar of things, you know, questions to ask about the day. So I have a little conversation at the table. We pull mm-hmm. it out and one of them was, what's the best thing you learned in the last year? Which is a great question. And um, they asked me and I said, oh, I was doing this book project. I learned so much. It was so exhausting. It's a Kickstarter. And it almost drove me crazy. And my wife had to support – like keep, keep the family fed and so oh, yeah. it was It was nuts. But it was an incredible experience. And my little boy says to me uh, – seven is not so little. He says – Rex says uh, – um, but, you know, it's funny. You didn't have any writing in that. And I'm like, oh, you're totally right. Like, I think of it as my book, but it was a collection of stuff from other people. So at all these problematic, I want to say problematic at some level, circumstances around it is I was something I was producing. I was very proud of all the people involved, all these collaborators, but I was the editor. So, um, but people rushed in. When we launched the Kickstarter, about 600, 700 people pledged in the first day. And those are my true fans. And the true fans yeah. of the magazine, by extension, the magazine, and some are true fans of some of the writers. But I was able to, you know, collectively, whatever loyalties each of those people had, the fact that like almost 700 people came in, I'm like, that's the extent of what I can do as an ask. And then another 800 came in over uh, 29 days. But it was still yeah. really useful to know. It's very gratifying. I mean, I'm really, I've been super humbled. This is the first week I actually just sent out my first Patreon update for yes. my backers and, uh, or my patrons, I guess. I have to distinguish my Kickstarter and Patreon terminology here. Um, <laughs> but it's been really sweet to see people who uh, came on strangers who I didn't know who backed my Kickstarter two years ago because they found the project through it being a staff pick on Kickstarter or a, a popular for Portland project. Um, they ended up sticking with my career. And some of these were people who gave incredibly generously for people who didn't know me personally. I, I was blown away at the time. And I remain blown away by the fact that every time I release something, these are the folks who were there on day one, ready to pick it up, ready to support me. And I I really can't express like it, it chokes me up just thinking about it because it it's astonishing to me that there are people in the world who are willing to do that um, and who enjoy my work enough to believe in it to that degree and say, yeah, you know what, I'll back this up. I mean, it's different, you know, likes on Facebook, favorites on Twitter, reblogs on Tumblr. They're all well and good. When somebody takes their hard-earned cash and ponies up and is like, yeah, I believe in you. Let's do this. It's really intense voting as, a, as an emotional dollars. response. Yeah, it's voting with dollars. And it's and uh, that was, you can imagine what that was like being an undergraduate, finishing and trying to finish my thesis and having a smartphone that was going off every two seconds once the campaign had launched. I would be in lectures and classes desperately trying to pay attention when I can feel my phone just buzzing <laughs> constantly in my pocket with email alerts from Kickstarter saying, hey, this person's giving you 50 bucks. This person's giving you 20 bucks. You know, like it's it was really uh incredible to experience and that was the last three weeks of my college career the campaign closed oh the morning that i graduated oh my um, goodness that's hilarious 
And it was both a great idea and a horrible idea because, you know, like you said, a Kickstarter makes you crazy. You you just can't live a normal life at the same time uh, as you were running a campaign, especially a successful one. I mean, we hit the goal within the first three hours of the campaign going live. And then after that, there was just this this continuous climb. And that uh, that was totally the reason that I was able to just go straight into this uh, for as a career. And it, it actually it feels like such a privilege in some ways because it means that I didn't have to go through the anxiety that you described with some of your other interviewees of launching into a career or starting off down a path and then eventually having to come to grips with the fact that, you know what, I don't want to do this. I want to do something different. How do I quit my day job? How do I support myself? How do I go about starting to do this? And the Kickstarter permitted me to go straight into a freelance career. And it seemed like a no brainer because this was something that, you know, 333 people thought was a good idea. And I thought it was a pretty good idea. And by darn it, you know, that seems like what I'm going to do, but that I didn't have to deal with the stress of quitting a day job and the instability of giving up a salary. I never had that to begin with. Yeah. And I want to say something and I want to say it very carefully. So it does not become offensive. Now, now you're, what is he going to say <laughs> is uh, you were clearly a talented artist. You're a talented artist two years ago, even more so now as you've developed, you describe your background that let, gave you the foundational thing. There are a lot of talented people in the world. We both know this. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of talented people. And so I, I think there's both like a lesson and a cautionary tale is that the amount of work you have to do to set this up and the fact that you did almost drive yourself nuts finishing school, doing this, and then having the fulfillment thereafter. Like you could be – you were ready to work professionally at that moment and, and able to you, – you seize the opportunity. You structure it right and you judged correctly that you had the social network to support you as you transitioned into this. We're able to use this money to help you move into the point where you could then be getting work, either selling your own stuff or getting commissions and and being able to ratchet up into a full career. And I think that's the tricky part for a lot of people is you know, I don't think everyone can – Certainly, everyone can't do a Kickstarter the May of their graduating year. But <laughs> absolutely not, and I would not recommend it. Do not do what I do. <laughs> but but even the idea of like, there's that issue of do you need an apprenticeship in the world? And you had gotten that already. I think there are people who will benefit from you know whatever experience in college being more expensive. Fewer and fewer people are going to have the conventional college experience over time too. So there'll be more alternate paths as well. But I think it's remarkable that you seize the opportunity. But I think it's clear that you had a structural ability to evaluate this because it came true so well or even more so than you expected. So I know there's, um, was it survivor bias? It's like, because this worked out, you're in a universe in which it worked out. But I think the choices you made, even like the levels, the amount of fulfillment, what you're actually agreeing to deliver, how it um, coincided with your project, it made this all feasible. And so mm -hmm. I, I think like there's both the lesson that people in the same circumstance, whether whatever they're doing, as long as they can align where they're at, they could start and try this same sort of thing and potentially succeed. The cautionary tale would be is if someone, you know, and you certainly have the self-assurance that you knew the level you were working at. Some people underestimate their abilities, some overestimate them. That's an ongoing battle for Absolutely. everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's when you decide to put the Kickstarter into your campaign or put it into your career yes. uh, can really, can really, you know, depend on, on what you're aiming for and what you want to get out of it. You don't want to tax the goodwill of your audience too soon or too much. Uh, I, I think, you know, the really ironic thing about this whole project was I drew this comic about 
wanting to make comics for a living. That's basically what True Believer is about, <laughs> is the process by which I came around to realizing I wanted to be a cartoonist. And the, the effects of a mentor of mine, Dylan Williams, who was a small press publisher here in Portland, who passed away. And he was one of the teachers in the IPRC program, which I went on to do after I did my summer class at CCS. So I was doing my junior year at Reed and then also taking this class through the IPRC off campus. And uh, his his effect on my career was really profound. And, and his passing especially was super powerful in terms of uh, catapulting me towards wanting to commit to this and really mean it. And so I make this comic, which is about wanting to make comics. And then people give me a living wage to make a comic <laughs> that is about wanting to make comics, which has enabled me to make comics for a living. And now two years later, I have actually sold out of that entire print run of a comic about making comics for a living and I'm making comics. You know, it's like this insane. I, I tell people about when they ask me what true believers about at conventions, I get to tell them this story and you know, it makes me teary. It makes them teary. We're like all crying all over the table. <laughs> it's just so profound and meaningful. Um, and it's, it's happened. It's come to pass. And the, the kicker is that on top of all of this, when people ask me for advice about doing autobio comics, I say, for heaven's sake, don't just make autobiographical comics about making comics. That's so boring. And, uh, I I did that. Oops. Um, <laughs> but maybe that's what we were talking about earlier with uh, having, you know, experiencing other things and bringing to bear other passions and other geekeries and other, you know, whatever's into your practice is maybe what I'm trying to say is don't just make comics that are autobiographical to the point of being navel gazing. Um, but if you're going to make comics about making comics, have, have something going on that's beyond that. Uh, and thank goodness it worked because, I mean... That's what I get to do now. There's one thing that I will say, which I feel like is always an important point to bring up when people ask me, you know, how I how I ended up doing this for a living so quickly and launched straight into it. And the other position of privilege that I was in, which is kind of a weird inverted privilege, is that uh, I come from a not financially excellent background. Um, my, my family were dirt poor when I went to college. And so I was... I, I um, strongly advise that having been in the same position when I went to college, it was, <laughs> it was, if you can arrange that so you don't go bankrupt and you have food on the table, but you can yeah. be as poor as possible relative to college financial aid, very useful. It really helped. Uh, I Coming you know, from a family of two freelance writers, uh, we were not in a great position, but I had good grades and Reed obviously wanted me there. And I came out with, uh, I think, like $1,500 in debt. That was it. And I paid that off with uh, work that I was doing, creative work that I was doing outside of college my senior year. And I, I basically got out debt-free. And that is huge. And I talked to so many people who are frustrated and struggling because they want to quit their day jobs, they want to go freelance, and they have to pay their student debt. And th I have so much sympathy for that. And it's something that I did not have to experience. And so I feel like that's always a really important point to bring up because that's something that is not to be trifled with or belittled. It's a huge burden on so many people. And uh, it's deeply frustrating to me that that's the way our educational system works. Well, with a seven and nine-year-old, this is uh, an issue of great importance to my wife and I too. Yeah, just stay poor, Glenn. Oh my God, we've, we've, we've put a little money away. We're doing just well enough that we probably will get completely soaked. We wouldn't be able to afford it, which is where most middle-class people are going to be in the, fu in Absolutely. the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I I was an undergrad at Yale, and it was about twenty grand a year uh, tuition, room, and board when I was there. And we got—I got essentially a free ride and had modest student debt. Um, you know, I was paying one hundred fifty dollars a month for ten years when I graduated in student Oof. loans. And I worked all the time. Worked all the time. Yeah, I worked school. as an undergrad too. I had—I yeah. had an external part-time job the whole time I was at Reed. But it was doable. Like, and that's uh, there was an article that just came out uh, about that. And I think. It'll be interesting what the future brings, because by the time my older son, if he were to want to go to a, you know, any of the uh, top-notch liberal arts schools or any liberal arts school that's not a state school, it's going to be $100,000 a year, $65,000 a 
this fall for Yale for tuition, room, board, and typical expenses. It'll be a hundred grand in eight years. Wow, sixty-five thousand. Are they are they more expensive than Reed? I probably. I feel they're like all Reed's about same. yeah. Reed's about fifty thousand, which is just exorbitant. Yeah. So well, five. I think five or eight of that is considered like expenses on top. So that's the tip. So tuition right. room board is sixty, and that seems nuts to me. And the question is, in the future, um, that's why I was particularly interested in the course you took. Not, not you went to college, but that you know, the. The, the way that you got into your career immediately afterwards is I expect there's going to be substantially fewer people on the track who normally would have gone to a four-year college and probably a liberal arts college who will either be doing a combination of community uh, college or – which have come a long way. Community colleges have bumped up a lot because mm-hmm. the students are coming and so they've exce- they've cost more but they've also accelerated the kind of education they offer or online education. So there's going to be, a, I think, a much, much larger pool of people 18 to 22 who would have been college-bound. It's financially un- infeasible and they're going to have to find a different route to – to apprentice themselves into life, whatever career they want to take. And businesses are going to have to change about that. And so is media. So there's this whole, I think, a big transition coming up in the next 10 years that will have to encompass that. And I think there'll be many fewer people going to four-year institutions. Definitely. And many more people approaching mentorship situations without falling into the trap of being stuck in an unpaid internship at a company that's taking advantage of them, because that's a huge hot button issue right now. And um, it's something that I have mixed feelings about because I feel like, yeah, working for a company where you're not being paid to do what's essentially an entry level position is atrocious and should not happen. But then there are situations like... um, the mentorship program that we have at Periscope, which is now on hiatus, but for, for many years, this is how I came into the studio, is for three months I was a mentee, mento, we, we're not really sure what to call them, manatees. Um, Mentron. <laughs> Mentron. Oh, man, that's great. Where were you six months ago? Uh, <laughs> I grew up in Eugene. I know all the gender nonspecific terminology. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, that kind of environment where essentially at Periscope it's a, it's a you know, an LLC, but we're not a company. We're not profiting as a collective, everyone is paying to be there. So as a, as a mentee, you would get free desk space at the studio and access to this network of 28 oh professional freelancers who the combined experience is, you know, hundreds of years greater than I will ever amass in my lifetime. And being at Periscope, honestly, I mean, it's something that I had dreamed about since uh, I found out that Erica was working there and learned more about the studio through her autobio comics. And it sounded like the promised land. It, it was the next level of what I had experienced apprenticing with Eben when I was 12 and 13. But it was the kind of professional experience and, uh, you know, academia was great for certain things, but what I wanted was practical, hands-on, professional training. And you you can't necessarily get that from an educational institution. Sometimes you just have to go and fling yourself on the mercy of the nearest creative professional you can find and say, hey, can I scan some stuff for you in exchange for, you know, I just see lots of creative professionals who are doing this now, taking on assistants who are either, you know, paid partly in cash and then partly in career advice um, or experience or, you know, these various other situations. And I think on a personal level, rather than on a corporate professional level, it's a really good way to go because it means you get that kind of personalized training and advice and mentorship that's crucial and life-changing for so many people, especially creative types. Well, I should ask too is, uh, you know, uh, internships can be, as you say, incredibly valuable if they're structured that everybody benefits and the benefit for the person running an internship or the company or the people is that they get some of your energy, but they also get, it's refreshing. They learn more about what's going on. If it's run right, they learn from you, you learn from them um, Mm -hmm. and you get the benefit of, uh, I mean, this is, um, every time I talk to anybody on Twitter who's younger than I am in the same field, sometimes older, but often like people, I, I don't, 
have contact in my day-to-day life with people in their 20s. So I don't know what it's like to be that. And I write about technology and Twitter gives me insight into that. And I feel like the internship programs, same thing, people in whatever field, an intern brings in valuable wisdom and information about... Um, I have the classic story as I was working as a bursary student at the Yale Center for British Art when I was an undergrad. Uh, mm-hmm. This was, you know, like a minimum wage job and I worked in this uh, the conservation lab, um, but I was super, super technical. And they uh, got... So, this is in the 1980s and some group came in that wanted to convince them to take photos and scan everything onto worm drives. These were like video disc size drives. drives. Write once, read many. Worm. These are pre-writable CDs. Pre, it was sort of CD-ROM era. And they were, I think video discs or video disc size worm drives. And they asked me, I was 18 or 19, and these are people in their 40s to 60s, but they didn't have the technological background. They said, is this reasonable? And I said, no, because no. <laughs> it's changing so fast. You're going to waste all your time and money on this. And they didn't, but I was so happy they did not opt into it. They listened to me. Um, that may be an extreme example, but there's so much, I think it's that you're bringing water both ways. Um, but I, I was also thinking, you, just, you mentioned in passing, the program is on hiatus. Everybody at Periscope, as I can understand it, is working so hard. And there was the Periscope Kickstarter that was done with involved multiple people there. Is it a time issue that everyone is so goddamn busy right now? Yeah. It's it's the time. Uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there's so much. Uh, so in terms of, like, would I have the capacity to give the kind of advice that I would have received from right. somebody? Uh when I was younger to that many younger artists now? The answer is no, but there are more platforms for making it possible. So like Periscope is great because there are 28 of us in the same room and not all of us have to be on the game with our mentees at all times, right? They can come around to whoever happens to be free and ask around and say, hey, does anyone have time to look at a couple of pages that I'm working on? And that uh, allows for more of a dialogue that's not a strain on everyone in the studio all the time, but it allows for a variety of feedback for the mentees and it allows for you know more of a dialogue about different people who have different uh, artistic backgrounds and different opinions because there's a lot of diversity in the studio. And there's like, I, I put talks that I've given at uh, comics conventions and other workshops up on SoundCloud I try and record all the stuff that I do now and have it up there so that even if, you know, somebody contacts me and says, hey, can you give me some advice about Kickstarter? I'm sure you got a fair number of these messages after the magazine Kickstarter. Just a few, yes. <laughs> just, just just a couple. You know, either, hey, can you plug my Kickstarter because your Kickstarter was successful and obviously there's going to be, you know, crossover from R2 uh our two disciplines. I, I also um, should put this a cautionary tale, too. I got several, not maybe four or five, at least I'm trying to remember how they came in. I got people during the Kickstarter campaign said, you're doing a Kickstarter. If you back mine, I'll back yours, which is a, a scam. They set yeah. up, they contact people whose Kickstarters and later you back yours and they cancel the pledge after there's there's funds. And I don't know how many of those wound up uh, completing, but just, just a word to the wise, people in the Kickstarter world that this is happening it's, yeah it's not all sunshine and roses um, and, and the tough thing is that like it takes you know it takes me a long time if somebody writes to me and says hey i'm looking for some advice about how to get started as a freelancer i'm not just gonna dash them off a one-line email that says oh stay in school and eat your veggies bye <laughs> um peace out lb it's like not you you really need to give thought and energy to that it's the kind of response that i would have wanted to receive from somebody if i had cold called them and said 
hey, can you give me some advice? So, you know, I'll take an hour maybe and sit down and write out a big measured response. And the key is to maybe save those emails because there's definitely stuff that can be recycled and passed on. But even better, having the talks recorded, it means that I have like a Google Doc that I can send to somebody and say, hey, here's a huge list of resources and some lecture notes from a talk that I gave. You can listen to the audio on SoundCloud for free. Um, most of the advice that I would give you is contained in this talk. If you have specific questions, feel free to hit me back. And that's the kind of thing that I really like being able to do every so often, but it also becomes a challenge if that's all you're doing. And it can be intoxicating when people approach you as if you're in a position of expertise or power and are asking for advice. Like you've got it figured out. Nobody has it figured out. I mean, come on. (laughs) You don't want to be a gatekeeper for your advice either. You don't want to be put in a position where you're saying, you know, people feel... I mean, they can, people will feel resentment for whatever they want to, but you don't want to feel like you're like, I'm too busy. I'm too important. It's, but it's, you know, the, the, but then there's the death of a thousand cuts and like, how do you get anything mm-hmm. done? Um, but it is a fascinating thing. It's also, I, I, I think I bring up the busyness question because, uh, Periscope is a remarkable group of people and be, I, I've talked to people about this a lot and many, I want to say, I don't, I should come up with the stats, but I think we're in this is podcast number 82, I believe. And I think at least half of the people I've talked to, maybe even more, are in some kind of interesting collaborative space, which is not necessarily like just a co-working space. A lot of them are in, in, you know, they've developed spaces, they share space. So they started out in someone's office at a desk and that person helped them, you know, start the company and, um, or they've created maker spaces or whatever. And Periscope, I think is, is one of the most interesting. And other people in the freelance world could create periscopes, and I wonder if where you feed on each other, you do hand work off to each other when you're in a space where you're actually physically in common. I shared space for years with a bunch of freelance writers that were for anywhere from uh, four to eight of us over a period of 15 years in different offices, and uh, it was inc- we worked together on stuff. We did books. We sometimes you know collaborated, and so I think I would urge people to look at the periscope model, I'll have to come down and maybe like we do a group interview, get some of you all in a room and talk about the collaborative thing that goes on as well. But I think it's something to think about um, when people are trying to start out is not just maybe the internship thing is great if they can get into a space where people are working or, or put their effort in there or to help form their own, figure out how to sign a lease in common and form an LLC and pay the rent. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I actually just led a panel at the Vancouver Comic Arts Festival last month um, that I got together precisely because I wanted to talk about this. So oh, I, I gathered, um, and that's up on my uh, on my SoundCloud page as well. I think it's just soundcloud.com slash Lucy Bellwood. I will put um, a link in. And that was a building comics communities panel. So I got together um, Jeff Ellis, who uh, is one of the board members of Cloudscape Comics, which is a a nonprofit organization in Vancouver, B.C. Um, And Ed Brisson, who runs a comic jam, which is like a sort of monthly get together at a bar where people just come and hang out and do jam comics together. Uh, Katie and Stephen Shanahan, who are fantastic animators and artists and writers who run a sort of live stream. You were talking about, you know, people who live stream their artwork. Mm-hmm. They do a YouTube show called Shanahanigans Live that I guested on while I was in Toronto in May. And that's just a fun weekly hangout where they get to talk to their fans and Katie draws and Shaggy talks and they, you know, um, get to connect with their people through a sort of online community. And then I talked a little bit about um, Periscope and also about the drawing nights that I started three years ago in Portland when I had come back from being at CCS and was really thirsting for that kind of community of other people who were making comics and who were engaged in the practical aspects of of living the creative dream. And I wasn't finding it in Portland. Uh, the drawing groups that I that I ended up at tended to be more established. And so they were a little bit hesitant to just bring in any old new person off the street. 
And I started this thing every Thursday night at my house. I would have people come over and bring food and snacks and we would uh, sit around and draw for a couple of hours and then they'd all go home. And it lasted three years across several different houses. And uh, I finally stepped down from hosting it this year because it became too much like what I do every day now at Periscope. But it was a really, really great resource for uh, that kind of local community. And, you know, when we started, there were maybe between five, like five, five to ten people a night. And by the end, we were hitting like 24 people in an evening. And it was just open door policy. I would invite people I met at shows. I would invite people that, you know, I met um, on Twitter and we never had any serial killers. <laughs> it was pretty good. Um, but it it became a staging ground where people could get that kind of feedback and professional experience from folks who were maybe a little bit farther along in their careers or were bringing a different piece of uh, experience to the table. And that was really valuable, I think, for a lot of folks, myself included. And I'm glad that it's still happening. My friend Becky Hawkins is still hosting them every Thursday night in Portland. Um but it, it really served a great purpose for me in the time that I was running it. And I would hope that people would be encouraged based on that panel that I gave at VanCaf or, you know, hearing about places like Cloudscape or Periscope to found their own organizations. Because I totally agree that that's kind of the way to get it done. You, you go nuts if you're working in your room by yourself all the time. That's uh, – and I, I agree with you. Working in the basement, as I am at the moment in my home, I'm about to join a co-working space in the very near future after a few, there you years, go. few years at home for cost-cutting and practical reasons. I, uh, I will be emerging into the sunlight again. Um, <laughs> well, Lucy, this was great. Thank you for, uh, thank you for walking through how you got from, from there to here. And um, it's, it's going to be very interesting because you don't seem like someone at the beginning – of your career. You're well along into it, but I will still be very curious to see what the future brings for you. Exciting things, I'm sure. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks again to Swiftly.com for being a sponsor of this episode of The New Disruptors. Swiftly.com is a service that for $19 matches your small design job with a professional graphic designer who completes it in less than an hour. Go to Swiftly.com slash new so they know The New Disruptors sent you. If you'd like to be one of five lucky Twitter users to win a Swiftly task pack, that's five tasks valued at $79, just tweet the following, at New Disruptors, take a look at my graphics. They could use a polish at Swiftly and include your logo, your brand, Twitter background, or whatever you need design, and you could be one of the five people chosen. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.